Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 13 of Cosmic Controversy. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome Lowell Observatory astronomer Gerard Van Bell, chief scientist at the Navy Precision Optical Interferometer in Flagstaff, Arizona. Van Bell is an internationally recognized expert in the construction and use of optical telescopic arrays. Advanced arrays have been revolutionizing ground-based optical imaging of both distant stars and the hunt for extrasolar planets for well over two decades now. And that's the topic of our conversation today. Van Bell's pioneering stellar surface imaging work at the Palomar Observatory in California won him the inaugural Edward Stone Research Award at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 2001. He even has an asteroid named after him, Asteroid 25155 Van Bell. Van Bell joins us from Flagstaff. Gerard, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks for having me on, Bruce. It's good to be here. So I assume the asteroid Van Bell is not on a collision course with Earth. You know, given 2020, I kind of wish it was, but no, it's <laughs> not. There's, uh, there's another small body that is going to be showing up in November, but uh, it's very small, it's the size of a car. And even if it were to hit the Earth, it would just burn up in the atmosphere, most likely. Right. Okay. So before we get to your ambitious new optical interferometer, uh, at uh, outside Flagstaff. Set the scene for those listeners who have never been to Northern Arizona or Flagstaff and why over the decades this area has played such a, a vital role in optical astronomy. Yeah, Flagstaff and, and astronomy in general uh, has been at the forefront of, uh, of Arizona since about 1894 when uh, our founder, Percival Lowell, set up shop in Flagstaff. And he did so because... Arizona really has some of the most pristine skies in the continental U.S. and still in the, the overall United States as well. He was, uh, interestingly, he was working with a fellow A.E. Douglas who uh, helped him set up shop here. And then about a dozen years later, Douglas went down to Tucson to found the Stewart Observatory in 1906. And, you know, throughout the state, we have very notable observatories from some very large facilities here that are among the largest uh, to be found throughout the United States. Uh, Douglas, incidentally, he was an interesting fellow. He went on to, along with Stewart Observatory, he founded the field of dendrochronology, basically tree rings, uh, very much a polymath in that regard. And so he helped send along interesting science in that thread as well. Did but, he do work uh, at the Petro Did he do work at the Petrified Forest by chance? I think that might have inspired him. I mean, that's just down the road from us. There's really a bounty of interesting geology here, and in addition to the really nice skies in Arizona, we have, of course, the Grand Canyon. But uh, just about 45 minutes away from Flag, down the I-40, is also Meteor Crater, which is really the best preserved example of a impact crater in the world. It's only, only quote unquote, about 50,000 years old. It's about a mile across. And that's when something much, much larger than this little body that's gonna pass by us in November, something that's more about the size of a house uh, hit and pretty much detonated when it got to the ground and blew this big old hole 
into the landscape. And so that's another thing to see. And it's also, and so, it's also called Behringer Crater, is it not? Or was? That's right. So the Behringer family has owned that site for uh, about the last hundred years. Uh, the original Behringer bought it uh, after making a, a large fortune in mines in, in uh, southern Arizona. And uh, he managed to turn that large fortune into a small fortune by coming up to northern Arizona. And, and his theory, interestingly enough, was uh, in purchasing the crater, uh, at the time, it was considered to be a volcanic crater. And he looked at that and he was like, no, no, I'm smarter than the rest of y'all. That is a meteor impact. And I'm going to mine the meteor for the iron and I'm going to make a fortune. And so he was really, he had a, a stroke of genius with that in identifying it correctly over the geologists of the day as a meteor impact. But unfortunately, he was off base in deciding that he was going to find that core because the core actually more or less came apart when it hit. And so there was no core to be found. Uh, and so there's a number in that crater. If you go there and visit there today, they have a very nice visitor center. Um, they have, you can still see looking into the crater, a, a number of mine shafts that were, were sunk into there looking for this leftover core that doesn't exist. That's amazing. So, I, I, I've been yeah. to that, I've been to that crater many, many years ago, but I, I didn't know the backstory about the iron. That's, that's uh, interesting. And between that and kind of the other geologic features of the area, um, the, in addition to the astronomy, uh, Arizona and, and northern Arizona in particular has played a role in space exploration with the training of the Apollo astronauts in the 60s. You know, they came here and they went into Meteor Crater and they also went into uh, artificial craters that have been blown into some of the lava fields that are nearby town here. And uh, they trained with mock equipment on how to uh, navigate these uh, crater fields that they would find on the moon. And they also came to Lowell and studied features of the moon through our telescopes here, notably the 24-inch historic Clark telescope that we've had here since 1894. And so there's a real, it's really kind of in the bones of the town here, the, the astronomy that's been going on uh, since the 60s and even since the late 19th century. Well, how has uh, astronomy and Lowell Observatory changed since uh, Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto in 1930? Well, it's been kind of an interesting evolution of, of uh, astronomy in general, and, and Lowell certainly has uh, come along for the ride as, as the general community has changed. You know, there's been a real onset of the application of almost uh, industrial scale uh, applications and industrial scale machinery to astronomy. Uh, maybe the first big telescope in that, uh, that regard was the Palomar Observatory in 19, that, that saw first light in 1949, where there was really a, a major effort to build that up, and, and that's happening now throughout astronomy as these big, big telescopes are getting built. The 4.3-meter uh, telescope that Lowell Observatory owns, the Lowell Discovery Telescope, that's about an hour outside town, you know, we had uh, large contractors come and build that because they build other large things like radar dishes, and a lot of that technology got applied towards the mechanics of that. Um, the other thing that has really changed the face of astronomy has been the advent of the, the computer revolution, uh, particularly on uh, coming on around the 1980s. And that, that really has two fronts on that, which is uh, the modern electronics have really revolutionized detectors, and it's also revolutionized the computers that those detectors feed into. And so the modern 
photoelectric detectors. These, uh, the most popular thing you see in astronomy right now are things called CCDs, charged couple devices that you find uh, similar things in your cell phone to take pictures. Those are very sensitive. They detect 70, 80, 90% of all the light that falls on them. That's in contrast to uh, your eyes, which really pick off maybe 1% of the light that hits it. And prior to those uh, photoelectric detectors, uh, it was either using your eyes or using plates of film and film like you had in old style cameras, uh, chemical cameras rather than electronic cameras we have now. These uh, plates of film would only pick up maybe two to 4% of the light that hit it. And so when Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto in 1930, he was using these glass plates of photographic film and he was inspecting them by eye. And it's really a truly impressive feat that he was able to pick off Pluto at that time, you know, looking at, you know, millions and millions of stars on every plate that uh, got taken and comparing it, you know, on to similar plates taken a few weeks apart and looking for little spots that would basically move between the plates. The, the stars are relatively constant in their positions on the sky. So if you compare two fields uh, taken of uh, the, the same field of star, but taken two weeks apart, things that are in motion and in the foreground, namely in our solar system, uh, will appear to move against the background of stars. And so that's how Clyde Tombaugh picked up Pluto, but it was a very labor-intensive, a very manual sort of thing now uh, at that time. And nowadays, uh, we have computers to record the light and record these fields of stars and um, uh, then can uh, compare them from night to night to see if things move around. And gotcha. so there are a, a number of facilities now that do that kind of work and are routinely finding uh, things like Pluto in the outer solar system. But when the Tombaugh actually was looking for Pluto, and what I guess uh, some uh, some listeners may not know, when astronomers are look, using photographic plates, they're looking at the negative. That makes it a lot easier to, 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 to that find. That helps. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's still a like, lot like looking for a needle in a needle stack in terms of <laughs> you have a big field of dots and you're just looking for one dot that'll shift back and forth. No, no, no. Yeah. It's a, it, no I, I totally agree. It's totally labor-intensive. Anyway, now on yeah. to uh, interferometry. In the mid-19th century, uh, French physicist Hippolyte Fizeau proposed using interferometry to combine two separate beams of light in order to mimic a larger aperture telescope. In my book, Distant Wanderers, I write that Fizeau based his proposal on a classic experiment originally conducted at the turn of the 19th century by British physicist Thomas Young. Young had demonstrated the wave-like nature of light by showing that light split into two beams and then recombined would subsequently form interference fringes. The fringes are caused by the interference or interaction between wavelengths of light. In other words, the sine phases of the photons. Is that a pretty good definition of interferometry? That That is pretty good. It, uh, it touches on <laughs> how... Okay. I mean, always, always butter up to your interviewer, of course. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think that that uh, does, a, does a good stab at that. You know, there's... With, with trying to disentangle what interferometry is, it, it almost always immediately go, gets into the, the dark forest of you know, quantum mechanical spookiness, where uh, depending on how you're handling light and, and what you're doing with light, 
uh, and how you're detecting light, uh, it manifests itself as a particle sometimes and sometimes as a wave. Um, and in fact, an interferometer kind of plays and riffs on both of those things. And so with an interferometer, we have uh, separated telescopes that are capturing light and then sending that light to the back end. And then you take a picture. Uh, that's how we do it in optical interferometry, uh, where we're using wavelengths of light that are a lot like the sort of uh, colors that our eyes can see. And so this, this uh, piping of the light around from, you know, telescope A and telescope B, that's all playing on the fact that light has kind of a wave nature. And you're basically bouncing these waves off of the mirrors to get to the back end. And when the waves uh, get to the back end, you're getting the crests of the waves to stack on top of each other. Okay. And so we're going so to, that's using, we're going to get to, we're going to get to more detail about, about how you actually combine that a bit later. But I, yes. I just wanted to note this, the, the, go back to some of the history and 1920 Polish American physicist, Albert Michelson used interferometry at the hundred inch hooker telescope atop Mount Wilson to measure the diameter of Betelgeuse. So could you explain how he did that on that telescope? Sure. So in addition to Fizeau, uh, Michelson is really one of the two major godfathers, as it is, of, of the field of, of interferometry. He was also a Navy guy, I'll point out. Uh, so it's a good homage there. He, um, he was the winner of the Nobel Prize uh, in physics in 1907. He was the first American to actually win any Nobel Prize in science. And so he really had quite a bit of stature from that, uh, from that award. Uh, there's actually a very interesting recounting of his life and his story in uh, Bill Bryson's book, uh, Short History of Nearly Everything. That's a good read. Yeah, and in the, the 19-teens, Hale sir, uh, 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 was a builder of big telescopes, and he had gone on from building the largest big telescope at the time, the 60-inch, and went and get, did it again, and that was the, the result of that was the 100-inch Hooker Telescope, Hale went on to build the 200-inch telescope that I, I mentioned before. At Palomar. Uh, and right. At Palomar. Yeah. Which actually uh, was named after him, uh, the 200-inch Hale telescope on Palomar. And, you know, such, is, such was the stature of Michelson at the time that once Hale had completed the 100-inch, um, here comes Michelson along and he's like, well, you got a nice telescope here, but I want to do something to it. I'm going to strap a 20-foot beam of steel to the nose end of your telescope. <laughs> and I'm going to have somebody riding around, hanging out in the air on the front end of the telescope, being able to adjust these mirrors as we point to stuff on the sky. And uh, um, we're going to put uh, a mask. We're going to put a covering in front of the primary mirror of the telescope that just has two little holes. And... We're going to have mirrors on the end of that beam that reflect light in basically kind of like a T into those holes on the mask in front of your mirror. And so with the way when you do that, what you get is uh, not a 100-inch telescope, but you get part of a, of a 20-foot telescope um, with those mirrors hanging out on the ends of that beam. And uh, that allows you to have much more resolving power when, when the size of a telescope increases, um, you get two things. If you make a big, if you make a big single piece of glass larger and larger and larger, you get the ability to collect more light and see faint things. But also along for the ride with that is as the mirror gets bigger, 
you get the ability to see finer and finer detail on the sky. And with interferometry, we kind of cheat and we skip the whole collecting more light part and we basically get a big optical system that doesn't have a lot of glass. You're actually getting most of the light is falling between these outrigger mirrors. But you get the resolution. You get to be able to pick out detail. And so Michelson appreciated that from his earlier work that netted him the Nobel Prize. And he figured out that if I have this uh, telescope set up with a 20-foot beam, then I can uh, get just enough resolving power to see the diameter of the very, very largest stars on the sky. And by largest, I mean the ones that present themselves with the greatest amount of angular extent on the sky. Um, and of those, the, the ruler of the roost is uh, Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse uh, is it's about 50 milliarc seconds across. That's about the size of an orange. If, it's, if you're trying to look at it from, you know, if I'm here in Flagstaff, if I'm trying to look at that orange over in, say, Albuquerque, um, you're trying to measure the size of, of a body that has that apparent size. So Betelgeuse is obviously a lot, a lot bigger than an orange, but it's also a lot further away. And so it's, uh, it's pretty small. Most telescopes up until that point uh, had a limiting resolution of about one arc second. That's a thousand milli arc seconds. And so you're trying to go from a thousand milli arc seconds down to about 50, five zero milli arc seconds and, and uh, get a set of calipers uh, stuck on either side of this, uh, this supergiant star and see how big it is. And so uh, using this interferometry trick, you can actually do exactly that. And so this represented the first measurement of a uh, stellar object diameter. And uh, Michelson managed to pull that off with, you know, a lot of uh, kind of steampunk technology basically in 1920. So it's pretty impressive. That's amazing. Now, uh, I remember visiting that telescope uh, during the research for my book. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the mirror was made from Coke bottle glass it, it is a, a, a large part of that hundred inch mirror. It, am I wrong in that? That's right. No, that's, uh, that's entirely right. In fact, um, if, if you can get the real premium tour of, of get them to show off the, the mirror, um, you can actually uh, look into the back end of the 100-inch telescope where this 100-inch mirror is. That's why you call it a 100-inch telescope because the primary optic, the biggest optic is 100 inches across. And if you shine a, a flashlight, if you basically take a flashlight and you put it right up against that, um, you can actually see the light reflecting around inside the glass that, that uh, uh, makes the mirror. And you'll see little bubbles. There's a ton of little bubbles in there. So it's not the highest quality glass for this kind of work. I remember that. Yeah. They, I, I think uh, one of the, uh, the guides did show us, show us that it was a, a conference tour. So we got the VIP treatment. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, actually it was a, a, for the Char array, which you worked on. It was Hal McAllister from Georgia state university. Uh, ah, wonderful. The how, Dana, how the, the Dana point uh, conference. I don't, that may have been before your time there, but anyway, so uh, let's not to get too technical, but let's get back to the interferometry itself, uh, uh, the the physics of it. Because could mm -hmm. you explain how images from two separate telescopes can be constructively combined, and and what exactly are the fringes? Sure. So I'll start off by uh, trying to trying to trick you into thinking that uh, you understand interferometry. So let's <laughs> let's. Let's start off with a regular telescope. And so with a regular telescope, 
you have a big mirror, like in the case of 100 inch, you have a um, 100 inch piece of glass and into that piece of glass uh, has been ground. They've, they've basically excavated a very precise curve. Uh, it's basically a big bowl. And um, once, once you've shaped it right, uh, a thing that they do with, with uh, a piece of glass like that is you put it in a vacuum and you expose it to uh, arc lamps of, say, aluminum, and the aluminum flies around inside the vacuum and then it sticks to the glass. And that's how you make a mirror. And the important thing is the shape of that bowl. It has to actually follow a pretty specific mathematical prescription. And usually a telescope like that has the big primary mirror and it reflects the light almost backwards the way it came, but it starts to converge, it starts to come to a focus because it has that curve. And then typically a telescope will have a secondary mirror that's riding on a truss above the primary. And that secondary mirror also has a very specific shape uh, ground, in, ground into it. Um, most times it's not a bowl shape, but it's the opposite. It'll be kind of a dome shape and it's facing the primary. And so it will intercept that light that's been reflected by, by the primary and then send it back down to, towards the primary. And in most cases, you actually have a hole in the primary that lets you let the, that light reflected off the secondary pass through and then focus onto a camera. Uh, the 100 inch, by the way, does not have that hole. It actually is just a big flat mirror. And uh, they have a third mirror, which basically then bends the light out of the pipe, uh, bends the light out of the, the path of the primary and secondary. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but in most cases nowadays, we just basically go through a hole in the primary. Now, that light that has come from whatever the telescope is pointing at, if you were to trace a ray from, of light from, say, a star off in the distance, and you were to have the ray pass through the primary to the secondary to the back end where your camera is, you can think of the light being spread across the whole face of the primary mirror. And if you were to measure the distance that that light travels to the back end, uh, regardless of if you have a ray that hits the edge of the mirror or is near the center of the mirror or anywhere in between, if you were to measure that distance, it would be equal to a fraction of a wavelength of light, so about a nanometer. Uh, a nanometer um, is uh, a small number. Um, if you pluck a hair off your head, uh, your hair is going to be about 100 microns across. And so uh, a thousand times less than that is about 100 nanometers. And so you got to go even 100 times less than that to get down to uh, these sort of tol optical tolerances. So you actually have to grind the shape into the primary mirror and matched into the secondary mirror so that you're meeting these very, very exacting optical tolerances. But then once you've done that, any ray that you're tracing through the system gets to the back end with equal path length relative to the other ones. And so this is why optical alignment and optical figuring is so important when you're building even a, what I call a conventional telescope that has a, a monolithic mirror with a secondary mirror to the back end. Uh, but if you do that, and the back end, gets there, and the back end is simply the uh, camera, the the CCD that that uh, actually records the photons, or precisely, okay. yeah. And so, if you've done all this, uh, like I've noted uh, before, you have the the waves of light; they all pile up in the back end, and all the crests of the waves stack at exactly the same time at the camera, and so you get a. A diffraction limited image, you get an image that's in focus. 
unless you, if, if you haven't quite done it right, then you'll get a blurry image. You won't get as good of an image as you can. This is how a single aperture telescope interferometrically works. Now, it's actually not so much of a leap to get to the next step, which is an interferometer, which is take the mask like Michelson had and punch a couple of holes in it, maybe one out at the left edge and one out at the right edge and put that over the primary mirror. So if you've masked off everything except those little holes out at the edges, none of the light will get through except for through those holes. But through those holes, you're still matching the path length. You're still getting the light from the sky, off the mirrors, to the back end with equal path length. And it'll actually still interfere. You'll still get a signal that is diffraction limited. In other words, so, it, in other words it'll still combine uh, constru right. constructively. Constructively combine, it'll combine in a coherent fashion. Um, if you don't meet that condition, you can still have what we call in the business a light bucket, and you can still um, collect the light, but it uh, you can't make a picture out of it. You can just basically tell how bright something is at that point. Okay. And so with a foundation like that, one further step on top of that is what Michelson did, which is you have on... Uh, in front of each one of those holes of the mask, you put a pair of mirrors, that's basically a little periscope, that does a little dog leg and moves uh, a beam from much further out into the path of that masked aperture. And if you can do that, again, matching the path length condition where you're doing this uh, equal between the left side and the right side to some fraction of a wavelength of light, if you do it that precisely, then you can make an interferometer and then you can actually uh, make it bigger. In fact, Michelson could have gone with a longer beam if he had had a bigger dome. Uh, in fact, later on, they built not a uh, another interferometer that was 20 feet long, but they built an interferometer that was 50 feet long up on Mount Wilson, and it never worked quite right. And the reason for that was that it had a lot of flex and a lot of play in the structure. It wasn't quite good enough for maintaining this uh, path length condition between the left arm and the right arm. And so it never did a lot of work. But uh, nowadays, when we build this kind of thing, we have uh, much more modern uh, structures and materials available to make things really stiff and, and meet these path length conditions. And we also have uh, modern active controls where you can actually uh, just resign yourself to the fact that you're not going to make it stiff enough that it's going to be super floppy, but then you have little motors that track things in real time and can actually reposition things such that uh, the mirrors themselves are in the right place at the right time. So how do you mitigate the interferometric fringes from the, you know, which uh, Thomas Young first observed back in the day? And this is a, apparently a, an experiment that is done in some physics labs in high schools where you can see the fringes mm -hmm. from two combined beams of light. Uh, so how do you actually mitigate the interferometric fringes in order to extract the most information from your observations when doing interferometry? So what you get when you take these two beams, uh, uh, pretty much a, a core element of astronomy is you're just measuring the brightness of a signal on some kind of detector. And in the case of CCD detectors nowadays, these chip detectors that are two-dimensional and they have pixels uh, up and down and left and right, uh, each pixel is just measuring the brightness of the light falling onto it. 
In the case of an interferometer, you get light falling onto a pixel or many pixels that have either a lot of brightness or no brightness. Um, and just like looking at a field of stars, for example. But in the case of the interferometer, you're trying to measure the interference. You're trying to measure how the lights come together. Um, you're trying to measure if there is a lot of constructive interference where you've taken beams from one aperture and then combined it with a second aperture and you get it to be uh, increased in brightness. Or sometimes you can go for a de uh, destructive combination where you get actually a dark spot. And the, 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 the simple description of this is um, you can measure really two things of the light that you've combined. You can measure how bright it is and you can measure where it is. And so in the case of two light beams that have combined on your chip from an interferometer, the amount of light, if you have a lot of that, and if you're confident that you've aligned everything right and it's actually the amount of light is due to the interference between the two beams, we call that the fringe amplitude. We call that basically the, the amount of interference between your left beam and your right beam. Another word for that is contrast. If you have two beams that are, are joining up in a, uh, in a good way, you get a nice bright signal. And broadly speaking, this connects to the sizes of things on the sky. So if you're looking at a star, be it Betelgeuse or Aldebaran or Deneb or whichever, if you look at an object, and, it, and it's actually a little backwards here, if you look at an object through an interferometer and the interferometer is beginning to resolve it, it's beginning to measure its size, the amount of contrast actually goes down. The, uh, the amplitude of the fringe goes down, so the, the basically the brightness on your pixel will go down. Uh, and so that's the, the first thing you can measure is you know, how much contrast, how much uh, brightness do you have in this fringe? And, it, and you can relate that to the size of the thing on the sky. The, the other thing you can measure is the phase. And that basically is where is the fringe? So if you put the two beams together and you get it nice and centered on the CCD chip that's detecting your, your two beams that are being put together, that's associated with, with one phase. But if you actually... Um, have, if you notice that the position of your interference, the position of the, the bright spot on your chip shifts to the left or shifts to the right, that is actually associated to, it's connected to where things are in an image. So again, if we think about looking at Deneb and we have a big star there and we've uh, been able to see that it has a certain size because of the amount of contrast, the amount of brightness in the pixels. Uh, if Deneb, for example, has a really dark spot on one side of the, spot of the star due to a convection cell or something else. Uh, if it has a spot on the surface of the star, those bright pixels on your CCD chip may shift to the left or shift to the right. And so we call that the phase of the fringe. Uh, it's basically connected to uh, where things are in addition to the amplitude telling us how big things are. And so between that, you can put an image back together. If you do a lot of this and, and are able to capture a lot of amplitudes and a lot of phases of the image, you can actually uh, reconstruct the image. Can you, um, this can you reconstruct the image so that you lose the, the fringes, the dark stripes? You can, you can but it, it, it is tricky. Sometimes it requires making assumptions about what you're seeing. Sometimes it requires... Uh, getting information from elsewhere as far as other kinds of imaging devices. And the, the reason for that is interferometers are, you know, we're, we're kind of cheating with building interferometers. We're basically getting 
telescopes that are bigger than we deserve to have, but it comes at a price. And so I've already mentioned one of the first prices, which is if you have an optical system made up of small apertures that are widely separated, you get a lot of resolution. You're able to pick out fine detail on the sky. But uh, the first price you're paying is uh, sensitivity. You have a lot of the light does not get captured by the small apertures. It's falling on the dirt between them. And so you don't get as much sensitivity. But the other thing you get, and this is uh, an interesting subtlety of interferometers, is um, you get a lot of high resolution, but you actually miss out on the low resolution. The, the spacing between the mirrors, it tells you the information in the image that is at different sizes. And so uh, a good way of thinking of that is, if you have a widely separated pair of apertures and you look at a, a lake off the distance, you can actually get in a situation where kind of you, you, you are able to measure the, the size of the waves on the lake, but you can't actually establish what the size of the overall lake is. Gotcha. Um, and so it's, uh, it can be a little tricky with you're trying to put an image back together because you'll get the what we call the high frequency image information, the, the, the sizes of the waves. But you might be missing out on the low frequency information, the kind of the broad features of, you know, is the lake square or is the lake round? Gotcha, uh, what's gotcha. the size of that lake? So it's uh, it's it's an interesting game that we play. And, and you can when we make arrays of telescopes, we design them sometimes to take that into account where we'll have more than just two telescopes feeding the interferometer to the back end. We'll have four or six. Right. And right. we'll have some that are very far apart, but we'll also have some that are very close together. And we try to use that to get a mix of the information of the picture on the sky. So to step back, not to get too far in the technical weeds, at a fraction of a, of a cost of a much larger optical telescope, or in some cases to mimic a telescope that is not even technically feasible at the time. Yep. Uh, you can use optical interferometry to get the information that you would normally get, much of the information that you would normally get from a much larger aperture telescope. Is that that's right? The, the largest interferometer that's operating on sky in an astronomical sense right now is the Chara array, and they have a effective resolving power of, of uh, 330 meters in size. And that's, you know, an order of magnitude larger than the biggest single telescope that they're even dreaming of building right now and that's a uh and that's an array at mount wilson uh, which was under construction when i was first researching my book and how McAllister, the astronomer at uh, georgia state university in atlanta who who actually was director of that at the time i don't know if he's retired now or what you would probably know i think you were involved with the char array can you give us a parenthetical definition of the char array yeah, Chara uh, came online in uh, basically 2000, and we had the first science papers coming out in 2005. Uh, that uh, was something I helped out with the commissioning of, but uh, the, the the real main part of the effort has been uh, uh, Theo Tembrumelar and his crew from Georgia State that uh, operates the array. And they're really at the forefront of uh, American interferometric astronomy right now. They're doing really good work, and they have uh, open time available for researchers throughout the U.S. who want to use it. Um, it's, a, it's a really impressive facility. Okay. And then uh, French astronomer Antoine Labarie, who I'm sure you know, um, received the Fizeau Prize in 2010 for his invention of speckle interferometry. Uh, what is speckle interferometry? So uh, Antoine Labarie is, is an interesting figure. He 
he is a wellspring of super crazy ideas. And he's occasionally right, which is the fun part. And so speckle nephrometry is one of the places where he was right. And speckle nephrometry is, is basically making use of, of uh, what you have, which is you'll have a telescope of a given size and you're trying to observe stuff at high resolution. And the problem is, is that when you ever increase the magnification of a single telescope, um, you usually get to a point where you don't get any more of a fine point of looking at what you see. You basically see something that's really smeared out. And that's because your telescope, which you spend all this time and effort and carefully aligning and grinding and, and, and making optical quality, is sitting beneath 100 miles of air, which is not optical quality. It's, uh, it's a bunch of mush. And it's a lot like looking at a coin at the bottom of the pool. And the, the way the atmosphere works is it's a lot like a whole bunch of blobs of hot air next to blobs of cool air. We call these actually seeing cells. And each one of them is like a perfect tunnel into outer space uh, over which you can uh, get light to your telescope. But each one of these perfect tunnels is smaller than your telescope. And so each one of the tunnels into the sky gives you a spot of light on your detector in the back end. We call these spots a speckle. Next to it is another tunnel that isn't quite giving you light from the same direction because it's a slightly different temperature, and so it bends the light a little bit, and so you get a bunch of speckles on the back end. And the idea with speckle nephrometry is that you can actually, again, uh, make use of the fact that uh, these patterns of light that are forming in the back end, they're actually uh, using the trick of light where it interferes with itself. Each tunnel is going to interfere with the other tunnels, and you can actually... Uh, mathematically disentangle the signal you see if uh, if you can capture these speckles. And the, uh, the trick that uh, uh, Labrie came up with is if you trip open your shutter and you stare for a second, 10 seconds, 100 seconds, all those speckles smear. It's, uh, you know, not only is the coin at the bottom of the pool, but somebody's just jumped in the pool. And so it's all moving around. And with speckle, the trick is, is that you take pictures really fast, faster than the atmosphere will change. It's still kind of messing things up and distorting things. But if you do it really fast, you at least freeze out the smearing. And that freezing out gives you an opportunity to then look at the patterns that are still then preserved in the, the image that hasn't been smeared. And you can actually mathematically decompose it with some kind of uh, some mathematical tricks. And you can actually tease out uh, some of the resolution that you lose otherwise. Uh, big telescopes are often uh, uh, limited in their uh, resolution because of the smearing effect of the atmosphere, and this is a way to get around that. But uh, to Labrie's credit, he did uh, was the first person to uh, combine light from two separate telescopes, the G1 and G2, oh, yeah. at Kellern, okay. which I visited in 2018, and he's worthy of a whole podcast, so we won't... Uh, uh, I, I like oh, yeah. uh, I, I I love his ideas because he he's willing to think outside the box and uh, I think oh, yeah. I think the problem in a, in mainstream astronomy is that people are too worried about what their ideas are going to how their ideas are going to be received at NASA sponsored conferences or or MIT sponsored conferences or Harvard sponsored conferences and uh, we need more people who who have crazy ideas because a lot of times some of them pay off. They do. And 
and, and, and Antoine has really been a torchbearer in that regard. So he's had a very impressive career arc of, of ideas that have fallen by the wayside, but some that have really paid off. So uh, as you mentioned, the, the uh, Lowell Observatory began atop Mars Hill in just outside Flagstaff, I guess now it's uh, almost inside the uh, city limits. I would think I'm, I'm not sure, <laughs> yep. uh, but um, today it does most of its work at telescopes on Anderson Mesa, a few miles east of town, and is partnered with the U.S. Naval Observatory and the Navy, the Naval Research Lab, the NRL, in operating and providing maintenance for the Navy Precision Optical Interferometer, uh, NPOI. Is that is that how you pronounce it? For the, Correct. Okay. Uh, which combines the observational power of six five-inch aperture telescopes uh, spread over hundreds of feet, uh, and they're able to, uh, you're able to measure the size of stars down to to below one milli arc second on the sky. Is that mm-hmm. all, is all that still correct? And and what does this That's all right. translate to in lay terms? What it translates to in uh, lay terms is you know one milli arc second is. You know, roughly the size that we've we, we, we've talked about that orange over in Albuquerque that uh, Albert Michelson resolved with the the twenty foot beam interferometer on the the hooker. Um, one milliarc second is about fifty times smaller, so it's like trying to see the size of that orange when it's in New York City from here, rather than just one state over. Okay, so with so many national observatories in Europe and the U.S. flocking to northern Chile or Hawaii. Why did uh, why did you guys choose to stay in Flagstaff for this major project? So it's uh, without a doubt that you get better skies in Hawaii or Chile. That being said, Arizona skies are still pretty darn good. And the logistics of supporting the facility here is substantially easier than going out to Hawaii and especially out to Chile. Chile's way out in the boonies. When... Uh, in my previous job, I worked on the interferometer that the European Southern Observatory has in Chile. And if I wanted to turn a screw, I had to travel for two days and travel overnight and so on and so forth. If I want to turn a screw at Enpoi, I hop in my car and I'm out at the site inside of 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, it, it, it makes it a lot easier to get stuff done and to test things and, and work through things. So you mentioned uh, when we first met uh, in your office uh, in 2012 that uh, NPOI and the Naval Observatory's larger mission is to provide celestial navigation data in the event of a global positioning system GPS-denied environment. Uh, p- please explain and why is that important for our national security? Well, one of the things that, that NPOI has been built from the ground up to do is is astrometry, uh, namely the measure the positions of stars in the sky. And it's it's kind of interesting how um, people have become a little inured to to how easy it is to navigate things nowadays because of GPS. You know, if you're if you order your pizza and you give the address to the pizza guy, he can bring the pizza to you because he's got the GPS on his phone. But GPS is only able to work because GPS knows where it is at. And so a lot of this work supports um, astrometry, which is referencing satellites like GPS against the celestial reference points in the sky. And um, this is tricky stuff to do. You um, recently, in a previous podcast, you had, uh, I think it was Tony Brown from the Gaia Project on. Yeah. And he was talking about the... uh, the work that it is doing, which is really impressive stuff, 
on uh, on getting the positions and and motions of you know roughly a billion uh, stars in the sky. Um, the rub is is that Gaia is so good and so sensitive that it's kind of limited in how it works on bright stars. Um, it it really gets kind of overwhelmed by the signal from bright stars. And by bright stars, I mean anything that you could go outside and see with your own two eyes uh, on a clear night. And the problem is, is that those are the exact stars you want to use for uh, for some of this navigational purposes because they're easy to catch. They're, you could catch it with a small telescope like you would have on a ship or somewhere else. And, um, and so uh, NPOI is very good at working on these bright stars and has been set up to... Uh, try and get the positions of those stars in support of this mission of our partner, the Naval Observatory. Um, one of their missions is uh, navigation. You know, you want to be able to do navigation. And so uh, astrometry, is, is it connects to all of these things and, and is the foundational place where uh, uh, things like GPS navigation get their information on on where they re, you know source their information that they tell us where you know the pizza guy has to go. You said that when we met that the uh, Navy currently provides celestial data to astrometrically calibrate on-orbit GPS satellites, but if one side of the star has a spot and is darker than the other, then your celestial navigation could be off. That's right. We, we, we were expecting similar effects in uh, missions where we're trying to find, with, with astrometry, trying to find planets around stars. Uh, you need very high accuracy measurements. And if you do that um, and you measure a star appearing to wobble around, is it, you know, you have to really kind of pull that apart and, and figure out, oh, is that because there's a planet that you don't see that's gravitationally pulling on the star and making it move from an otherwise normal center position? Or is the star rock steady in its position and it just appears to move around because there's a spot on it that rotates past? Got, um, gotcha. There's even, a, there's even a more pathological effect on... Uh, roughly half of the stars in the sky are binaries. They actually have a, a, a primary star and a secondary star, and they they orbit around a barycenter, the center of mass between these two things, which often is removed from the two stars at some point in space between these two stars. And the the catch is is that um, gravitationally they're fixed on that point, but the center of light is wobbling around that point because typically the the heavier of the two stars is brighter and it sh will basically loop around in a corkscrew fashion. And so if you're not careful about that, if you're using something like that to navigate or as a reference point for finding planets, uh, you can have problems. So uh, these are all things that uh, NPOI works on to try and characterize for, uh, for using these stars as reference points. And then you, you also mentioned that both the Discovery uh, uh, Channel uh, Telescope, uh, you call it the Discovery Telescope now, I think is the correct term, right? The, the Lowell Discovery Telescope, yeah, yeah, the LDT. Which was partially funded by Discovery Communications, if I, to the tune of... That's right. They were very generous in their support um, and really helped us get over the hump in uh, funding the facility. And so we've had a, a very productive, long-running relationship with Discovery Communications ever since. Okay. And then NPOI, so both the Discovery teles uh, Telescope and the NPOI can image high-altitude Earth satellites. And, and my first thought was, why would you need to do that? Why does the Navy need to image uh, geostationary satellites? 
Uh, it's a, it's a very useful diagnostic thing. Um, and so, for example, uh, a few years ago, there was uh, one of these uh, geostationary satellites called uh, Telcom One uh, came literally came apart, um, and small telescopes imaged some event that happened, and they couldn't. They, given their size, they couldn't uh, uh, make an actual image of of the the satellite, but they could see little points of light that were flying off in all directions from uh, the the primary satellite, which still itself was just a point of light. And so, you know, did that happen because uh, a fuel tank blew apart, or did that happen because you know some random fist-sized meteor punched through a solar panel? Um, if, if you could take an image of a object like that, you could figure out what went wrong. And, you know, people are very interested in that when they're trying to figure out, um, well, how do we improve the system for the next satellite so that it's, you know, A, if it's a problem with a, with a fuel tank, you know, we don't use that design again, we use something else. Or, you know, or do we have to uh, come up with other other sorts of solutions for other problems that we could solve that we could detect from a simple picture? Okay, so uh, when I was uh, researching my book, uh the advent or the possibility or the potential for space-based interferometry, infrared or even optical, uh, in the visible or whatever, was, was the next big thing. And uh, there were two NASA missions, and one was a joint mission, ESA and NASA, uh, that were being proposed at the time, and they even had launch dates associated with them. And uh, lo and behold, neither got off the ground and and uh, nasa has essentially abandoned space-based interferometry uh, as we uh, know it or envisioned it and um, essentially space-based interferometry would be a free-flying flotilla of these uh, you know two or three meter four meter maybe uh, space telescopes that are interferometrically linked by laser and you got two problems there. You got to do the, I think, what is known as a metrology, if if, if I'm not incorrect, mm-hmm. where you have to make sure that you know precisely the positions of each spacecraft in relation to the other, and then you have to have a some sort of a beam combiner that uh, sends the data that it's collecting on this on uh, from space back to a central combiner that's in that is part of the flotilla. Is, is that yep. basically the architecture for these uh, space-based interferometers? And so that sounds like the the architecture for the uh, what, what, what we call the terrestrial planet finder. Terrestrial planet as finder, as, the TPF mission, yeah. right? And that and uh, that, and and uh, someone told me at NASA, a couple of people said we just abandoned it. Uh, Charge Char- Chaz Beishman said it was just too difficult uh, at the time; the technology wasn't there, and we tried something else and. And basically, uh, it was a coronagraph. Uh, yeah. But uh, so what's the long and short of that? I mean, you you must be very familiar with the TPF. Why? What happened to it? And, uh, so, yeah, TPF and the, the other one you mentioned, the SIM mission, the Space Enterprise The SIM mission, mission and also the Darwin. Uh, it was Darwin TPF yeah. because the Dar- it was the European Space Agency was going to go in with NASA on what was called the Darwin TPF. And then the, That's sim, right. the sim was a precursor to the TPF. That's right. Sim was um, structurally connected. It was a single monolithic spacecraft. 
Um, it was a little different than TPF in that it was going to do extremely high precision astrometry. Um, so this, again, position measurements of stars in the sky, and, and this was in the pursuit of looking at the wobble of stars as planets pulled on them and detect planets that way. It would have given a... Uh, it would have given measurements of astrometric signatures that were in order of magnitude better than what we're currently getting out of Gaia. And by so doing, detect Earth mass planets around sun-like stars in Earth-like orbits. And so that remains a elusive goal of all of these planet-finding missions where we're not getting down to things that are that small in those kind of orbits. Um, but Sim was, yeah, Sim was, uh, going to open the door for interferometry in space. And part of it was sticker shock. Um, the 2010 decadal, this survey of the community done in the U.S. to determine what the priorities for the next decade should be, it costed out SIM at $1.8 And um, the, uh, the irony is that rather than do SIM, this decadal instead invented this mission called WFIRST, um, to avoid that cost, and WFIRST is now clocking in at $3.2 billion. So, And that's now known as the Nancy Roman uh, Space Telescope, I, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Which is going to do amazing science and amazing work, uh, but should have maybe been in line behind the amazing science and the amazing work that SIM was going to do. Right. Um, and it remains to this day now a elusive goal for us in the community on how are we going to find the Earth-like planets in the Earth-like orbits. Um, it's, 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 it's a tough thing that I think people generally acknowledge that we have to have astrometry at some point. Uh, but, uh, the question is how we're going to do it. And you write, um, and you wrote the, to me in an email, I believe that, uh, until NASA decides to return to its own space-based interferometry initiatives in POI is vital to maintaining the U.S.'s edge in state-of-the-art interferometric technology. It remains one of the one of the only two places in the country that we're, we're doing on sky interferometric work. Uh, us, us and Chara are uh, we're never intended to be, you know, the the national torchbearers in this regard. But we are now because of the fact that NASA, at least over the past decade, has kind of abdicated work in interferometry. My my somewhat cynical take on that is, you know, we had spent about 10, 15 years uh, really getting into the, the, the weeds of how to make interferometry work in space. And by 2010, we figured out that, you know, A, B, and C, here's how we're going to do it. And it's really hard. And NASA, I think, <laughs> kind of freaked out and said, you know, look, a squirrel, let's do a chronography. And now 10 years have gone by. And you know what they're figuring out? They're figuring out, holy crap, chronography is really hard. And, uh, you know, both of these techniques should be in the quiver of techniques that NASA has at its disposal. But uh, it's kind of a pity that uh, there's been this withdrawn on the withdrawal on the part of NASA in, in working on interferometry because uh, all of that investment has now evaporated. I mean, a lot of the expert engineers and so forth at JPL and at Goddard that knew how to do interferometry have gone on to other things, <laughs> work on chronography, for example. Um, and it, it'll take a while to kind of remuster that. And so between Chara and Enpoi, we're kind of the standard bearers right now in trying to uh, 
uh, provide opportunities for people to do this kind of science and get educated about how to use it and you know learn the particulars of how do you build these things. Right. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. We, we're coming to the end of the podcast, uh, just a, two, three last questions. And one is you have your own uh, innovative idea about how to bring uh, space-based interferometry to fruition, and that is called the Light Beam Project. Is this your own baby? So this is something I'm working on in partnership with a company called Made in Space. Uh, Made in Space has uh, made a name for themselves by uh, actually flying on the space station 3D printers and being able to do additive manufacturing in orbit already. It's uh, one of those things where I talk to people and, and, and I describe the concept to them of having a, a interferometer that effectively prints itself in space. And, you know, you get a, a smirk and a giggle out of them. And then <laughs> you describe to them how, you know, this is actually happening in orbit already with with uh, machines that can do this kind of work. And it really, you can see the scales falling from their eyes and them realizing that, you know, the future is now with this kind of stuff, that these technologies aren't just uh, lab things, but they're actually working in space. Well, bring it, uh, so, break, break it down for yeah. us. I mean, so how would it? How would that actually work? So in general, one, one approach to 3D printing this, this technology, it's a lot like an inkjet where you got a, a print head that has a filament that's fed into it and you, you, the print head uh, heats up and liquefies the material and it squirts it out the other end. In the case of an inkjet printer, you just basically squirt onto a piece of paper and you can print things. In the case of a 3D printer, you squirt onto itself material that you then build up in three dimensions. And so you can uh, basically uh, print stuff uh, out of uh, this, this material. You can really have a whole flexibility in what you want to print. In the case of light beam, what we would do is um, one of the, the things we're trying to do here is avoid the sticker shock of, of SIM. We're trying to not have a mission that costs you know up to $2 billion. We're trying to have something that fits into a, a small sat box. So this is somewhere just south of $100 million. It's pretty modest for a space mission. And the idea is uh, it flies up on a ride share. It actually is not the primary payload. It's a small little add-on payload that's about uh, one meter on a side, so three feet by three feet by three feet. Uh, and so this is a very small package. And once you get up to orbit, you then uh, you have two sides off of the central spacecraft that simply have a reflector mirror, and you print a beam on each side that pushes the reflector mirror out to a long distance, and that forms your baseline. That forms your, your two mirrors that then feed light to the central spacecraft that puts the light together. It's actually really similar to Michelson's original experiment on the 100-inch telescope, where you just have these outboard mirrors that send light to a central combination point, and by so doing, you can make the interferometer. Um, it's, uh, it has a number of advantages because... You get a big, big structure in space, but it didn't have to get packaged to fit inside of a rocket because it's not built until you're on station. And those booms that are holding the mirrors outboard, they don't have to survive launch. Launch is a very violent event of shaking and vibrating and uh, being uh, stressed under high, high G loads. And it doesn't have to survive any of that because it doesn't exist yet. Um, once you get in orbit, you can print something. It can be a lot more gossamer than it otherwise would need to be because of the fact that it doesn't have to survive launch. So this could be the wave of the future for space telescopes. So I think this uh, is a fundamentally enabling technology for getting this interferometer concept going. I think in the end, it also then uh, is a very unique technology to get us bigger conventional telescopes in the future. 
Astronomers always want bigger and bigger telescopes. The current decadal review that's going on, thinking about what are the next missions we're going to fly in the next 10 years, they have missions they're still trying to stuff into a payload shroud and, and have, you know, unfold in an origami-like fashion, uh, just like JWST is going to be. And I think a more sensible way is you send up the parts and then you build the structures that hold the parts uh, in such a way that uh, you get a much bigger thing than you could ever fit inside of a payload shroud. And so there we're going to get our 100-meter telescope that's going to let us uh, start to crack the problem of not only do we want to detect things like Earth, but we want to see continents and we want to see vegetation changing over seasons on these continents of Earth-like planets orbiting sun-like stars. These things are possible with a big enough telescope. The only way we're going to get a big enough telescope is if we build it there rather than send it there. So uh, let's go back, uh, just finally take a breath. We've talked about a lot. Uh, paint a picture because uh, a lot of people haven't seen an Arizona sky at night. Uh, they haven't been to the Anderson Mesa at night. Uh, I can imagine, you know, paint a picture for us, to the, for the listener, of what it's like out there at night when it's quiet and the skies are completely clear, which is uh, which you, I imagine is most of the time. It's it's really pretty magical as far as um, you got a real rich tapestry of stars overhead. It's uh, on a on a super clear night that's nice and still. Um, it it's amazing how densely populated the sky is with just pinpricks of light. Uh, it's 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 really uh, amazing to see that the. This time of year is especially nice when you look up and you can see the summer triangle. There's these three bright stars of Altair, Deneb, and Vega. Um, Deneb's at the tail of Cygnus the Swan, and, and I always like looking for that constellation because the you know it's this few stars in the sky that are like the body of a, of a swan and the wings of a swan, and it's flying along the sky right along the Milky Way. And so on a clear night like that, you'll see this constellation, and it'll have just this haze across a band a band of haze across the sky which is not clouds that's actually so many stars that you can't see individual ones it's just this background of light that's the plane of our milky way galaxy and this uh these skies are so good that not only do you see that band you'll see even a uh, a dark river going through the band which is the very densest part of the Milky Way galaxy where there's clouds of dust in the very center of the plane of the galaxy. And you can see all this. This is all uh, jumps out at you at a, at a nice site like that in Arizona. And, you know, just kind of that stillness that you get on one of those nights and, you know, the, the stars being uh, shining constantly bright. If it's a night with good seeing, it's, uh, it's really amazing. It kind of uh, uh, paints a very uh, artistic sort of backdrop for, you know, it's a good counterpoint to the somewhat technical work we do. It, uh, it really is kind of, it, like I said, it's magical. So, Gerard, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media? I do. You can find me uh, on Twitter. I'm uh, at Fringe Doctor on Twitter. Uh, I also have uh, a presence on Facebook. You can find me. Uh, my, my official account on Facebook, I think, is Gerard Van Bell Lowell on, on Facebook. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or bdormany on my Twitter feed. Gerard Van Bell, 
I'm thrilled that Lowell Observatory continues to play such a vital role in American astronomy. Thanks, Bruce. It's been a pleasure being a part of this. Thanks again for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>